0: If you would take out the Word of God and turn to First John chapter 4. Doing something a little bit different as we begin the year. we uh, Our pattern is to take a book of the Bible and work through that book verse by verse, passage by passage. And uh, we still haven't finished First Samuel. We're going to finish that in a few weeks. Uh, but to begin the year... Uh, As I said earlier, we're going to go through our essentials here at Ashland, Uh, what we think is essential to following Christ in the context of this local church. And today we're going to begin with the first essential am I a Christian? Uh, And this is a question everyone here should ask themselves today. Uh, I've been in these contexts before where folks who have attended church for uh, 40 years hear sermons like this and realize I'm not a Christian. And they come to faith in Christ. Uh, And maybe you're here today and you have no idea what this is about. A friend invited you uh, or you're just trying to get the new year started with some spiritual encouragement. Uh, Well, we want you to ask the question, am I a Christian? Am I following Jesus Christ? And we're going to try to answer that question from 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 13 through 16 if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. Oh God, we pray today that we would understand clearly what those verses mean for our lives. God, we would understand what it means to abide in you and you in us. God, that is a life transforming reality. That you, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, would choose to live in us. That you would allow us to live in you. And God, I pray that we would understand today that it only happens through Jesus Christ, who is Lord. And God, today we do pray that if there's anybody here who has never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they understand that he is the son of God, that he has come to redeem us, to shed his blood for our sins so that we might live with you forever. God, we want that for everyone here today, and we pray that it would be so by your spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. I can't wait to see what you're gonna do with him. I was, at the time, preparing... Uh, just moments away from preaching a funeral of one of my relatives. And my uncle, who's a very southern country uncle, you know the type, just says whatever they're thinking, he had cornered me in the funeral home, back by the bathroom before I was coming out. And and he was standing there, very intently, looking into my eyes, and he said, "'Cause you know as well as I do "'that when he died, he split hell wide open. "'I just wanna know what you're gonna do with him.'" And I was shocked that he was standing there saying those things, but I actually understood why he was saying those things, because the relative whose funeral I was about to preach was a horrible person, He was a very abusive man. He had actually abused his wife both both verbally and physically. He had alienated himself from all family, all friends. The only memories that I really have of this man were him yelling at us when we would go visit his house for running in the house. That's the only thing I really remember of him. And my aunt had asked me to do his funeral... And as everybody is thinking about this man's life, looking for some sort of hope, and and everybody knew who he was, my uncle just cut to the chase and cornered me, and I can't wait to see what you're gonna do with him. And he assumed that I was going to lie. He assumed that I was gonna get up and preach a funeral sermon and talk about how good this person was, and how that there was some sort of hope somewhere that he was in heaven and he assumed that that's what I was going to do. And the reason he assumed that is because that's so often what happens at funerals. It doesn't matter who it is. At funerals, most people believe in justification by death, salvation by death, We gather in the funeral home, and it doesn't matter how the person lived. It really doesn't matter who the person was. We're all looking for some sort of glimmer, some sort of generic hope that we can say that he is up instead of down. We just want something tangible to give us hope in those moments. And so many folks just simply drift into salvation by death. He died So he must have gone to a better place. And my uncle didn't believe that. And he wondered, how in the world was I going to get myself out of that? How in the world was I going to stand up there and preach a funeral and talk about someone who was so awful and talk about how he went to heaven? Well, that's not at all what I did. Uh, I talked about Jesus the whole time, which in a lot of ways made it obvious what had happened to my uncle. I wasn't a jerk. I don't think you have to be a jerk in situations like that. But you do have to make it about Jesus. And that's exactly what 1 John does. 1 John says you can know when you die whether you go to heaven or hell. You can know. That is the whole point of the book. John is writing to a group of people who are falling away for a belief called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this very ethereal version of Christianity, where where if you had this superior wisdom, some sort of generic superior wisdom about Jesus, the Father, Christianity, the Spirit, if you just had this generic wisdom, it really didn't matter what you did in your flesh. The, The flesh and blood was irrelevant. And you could live your life however you want it to. As long as you had this generic spirituality about God, the Father, the Spirit, you could do how, whatever you want to. And John writes and says, no, 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 no. Jesus lived in flesh and blood. Jesus taught us commandments to love one another Jesus really existed and died on a cross in flesh and blood, and that is to change the way that we believe. That is to change the way that we live. That is to change the way that we love. And you can know if you abide in God and He abides in you, that's not this mystical, ethereal concept that has nothing to do with real life. You can look at your life and say, Am I a Christian? And you can know. He addresses a a spirituality that is very common in our day when we think about Christianity. Christianity is so generic these days. It's just this hodgepodge of spirituality where we start with Jesus as this this gimmick that is to fulfill all of my hopes and dreams. Jesus is this rabbit's foot. That's to give me good luck in this life. And as long as I do or say some spiritual things, hashtag blessed, God is good, praying, as long as I do some generic spiritual things every now and then, attend my grandkids' Easter place, when I die, the pastor will have to say that I went to heaven. After all, Vince Gill will be singing in the background. Go rest high. What else is he going to say? And that's the version of Christianity that most of us grow up with or know at this point. And 1 John says, no. There's way more to it. And yet it's way more simple. Notice verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him. By this, he has unleashed in this book the foundation of what it means to live with God and God with us, to have fellowship and relationship with God. It is rooted in the love of God. And he says, By the love of God, we know that we abide in him and he in us. And he refers to this knowledge, it is an intense, experiential, personal knowledge that the Christian has. God lives in us and we in Him, and we know this by the love of God. The, the word here, abide, it, it means to reside, it means to take up residence. You can know if God has taken up residence in your life. You can know if you are living in God, in God, in you. You can know these things. How would you know these things? Notice because He has given us His Spirit. He has given us the word give here. It's very commonly used with the word grace, which is also very commonly connected to spirit. The spirit is God's gift to us. It's the gift of his person to us. Now, we have to understand that the spirit of God is a person. The, the spirit of God is not a force. The, the spirit of God is not just a feeling the, the, the Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity. The, the, the Spirit of God is the presence of God who himself is a person. And, and this person's role from the beginning of time to right to this second, the Spirit's role as the personal presence of God has always been to point to Jesus Christ, to point to the Son, to make much of Jesus And John is saying, you can know that God lives in you by his spirit because there is a time in which the spirit comes into your life and he points to Jesus through the word and you believe in Jesus' life and death in your place. And at that point, the spirit of God unites you to God. Paul describes this union that the spirit gives us when we believe in Jesus as baptism, immersion. And he plunges us into the person of God in a way where you can't tell the difference between us and God. We are one. When you believe in Jesus, that's what the Spirit does in your life. He points you to Jesus. You believe in Jesus. He unites you to Jesus. And so you can know if you live in God and you have relationship and fellowship restored with God by the Spirit of God living within you who has united you to God. And so we we ask the question, am I a Christian? Well, we answer it first of all. The Christian is the one who has been restored to God by the Spirit of God. Have you been restored to God by the Spirit of God? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam, he lives in perfect fellowship with God. Perfect fellowship. Perfect relationship. Nothing is hindering Adam from the presence of God. And yet Adam decides to rebel against God's authority. And and from Genesis 3 on, Adam is shunned from the presence of God. And then the Bible is a story about God restoring his presence to us, bringing his presence back to us. And we taste his presence when the Spirit comes and lives within us. Jesus endures the eternal banishment that we deserve to be shunned by God so that we can enjoy the eternal fellowship with God. And we we experience that by the Spirit. The fellowship we have with God, this, this reconciled fellowship, begins when the Spirit of God comes to live within us. We're listening to a sermon. We're reciting our Awana verses with our mom. We're at youth camp. We're sitting down with someone in a campus ministry and they have a track and and we hear about Jesus dying for our sins. And, And in those moments, whereas before, maybe it didn't make sense to us. Whereas before, we were rejecting the notion of the gospel of Christianity. Whereas before, maybe we didn't even care about it. And all of the sudden, It's like our eyes are opened and the only thing that matters is Jesus. And we understand our only hope for our sin is Jesus. And and we trust in Jesus and we rely upon Jesus. And in those moments, the very Spirit of God comes to live within us. You see, as you're answering the question, you have to ask, has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to you? See, answering the question, am I a Christian, is so much different than clicking the box on your Facebook profile, Christianity. It's so much more to it than that. It's so much more than just affirming some religious survey. And, And it's not something you can do from the outside in. Some of you are trying to take on Christianity from the outside in. You're attending every Bible study that you could possibly go to. You're praying every prayer that you could possibly pray. You're looking for new ones. You're, 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 you're trying to go through the motions, attending everything, going on mission trips, and you've never really experienced the power of the Spirit who opens your eyes to Christ and comes to live within you. Well, how, how do you know when this happens? Notice the text continues. And we have seen and we have testified That the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. How do you know? How do you know when you have the Spirit of God living within you? Well, well, the Spirit shows you something and you do something. Notice, first of all, you see. He says, We have seen. The, The whole book of 1 John is John writing to this church saying, I saw Jesus, I lived with Jesus. I'm an eyewitness to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. I saw his signs and wonders, and I saw the love of God in flesh and blood. I saw it. And and he would say, I saw it because eventually the Spirit opened my eyes to see it. And and John here says, we testify. We we are telling you the truth. This is a judicial term. It means to stand trial and, and to say what is true. We testify that the Father, God, gave or sent His Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is one with the Father, the Son, who is like the Father. That's what it means to call Jesus the Son of God, is that He is like the Father. He is in the same essence of the Father. And and just like God rules the world, the Son rules the world with the Father. He is God's King. And we have seen Him, the Spirit opened our eyes to see Him, as the Son of God, and to tell you that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he was the Son of God, God's King in flesh and blood. We've seen it by the Spirit. But God sent him, notice, his Son, to be Savior of the world, to deliver the world, to rescue the world, to save mankind. The Gospel of John is all about this. John writes the Gospel of John as the testimony of the Spirit that Jesus is the Son of God. And he shows all these signs and wonders that Jesus did to say, look, this is God's King. And the ultimate sign was the resurrection. He's back from the dead. And John would say, the Spirit that Jesus breathed on us opened our eyes to see Him as the Son of God that came to save the world. But what did Jesus come to save us from? It's an important question as we think about the world, as we think about mankind, as we think about the state of the world that we live in right in this moment. For most of us, we would say, this isn't the best of places, the world. There's war, there's injustice, there's poverty, there's political unrest, there's racism, there's crime. Their sickness, their disease. We look around the world and we see problems. And so, what did Jesus come to save us from? There are plenty of things we could point to, but but all of these things that we endure, that they are effects of a greater problem. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, God intentionally separated Himself from man. He restrained. His goodness for mankind. God created a world that he said is good. He created man and he said it is very good. And when man sins, he restrains his goodness. And now we live in a world that is dying. We live in a world that is decaying, that is not fully harnessed by the goodness of God. And and as sinners, those who have followed the way of Adam that I'm going to rebel against God too and do whatever I want, we deserve to die as well. We deserve to experience a moment where there is no life in God, where there is no goodness of God. We deserve to experience death ourselves. We deserve to experience eternal death. We deserve to one day stop breathing and enter into a realm where there is no goodness of God and only judgment of God. That's what we deserve because we have chosen our own way. And what God has said, okay, I'm going to turn you over to yourself. And the extent of that is eternal death and eternal judgment. And as bad as the world looks around us right now, and, and, and the most intense suffering that we endure here and now, we still live in a world where there are glimmers of God's goodness. You you experience the birth of a child and you see life, and you experience happiness in life. You, you experience family, you experience God's creation. You experience in this world things that remind you of the life and goodness of God. And yet, the extent of sin, the full measure of the curse of sin, is that you would go to a place where there is no goodness of God and there is no judgment. And you would endure that forever. You see, most people align with Christianity because of need. They do. I need better friends. And so I'm going to hang out with the folks at church or the campus ministry. I I need to get my life right. So, So I'm going to embrace some spirituality when it comes to Christianity. My kids really, really need to grow up in church. No, because of your sin. And because of the full extent of the consequences of your sin, you are headed to a place of judgment. You need a savior. You need one to save you from your sin. You see, some of us come in here today and we say, 2020 vision. This year I'm getting closer to God. I'm gonna gonna read my Bible. I'm gonna read the whole thing in a year. Have y'all ever done that? I'm gonna read the whole thing in a year. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to follow Christians on Insta. Follow Toby Mac this morning. I mean, I'm ready to go. 2020 vision. And then, a few months from now, your Bible reading plan, you're down to Leviticus. There are no checks in those boxes. Toby Mac's boring, sort of, regurgitating the same quotes month after month and travel ball started back she hadn't been to church in a few weeks and instead of feeling closer to God you feel further away from God than you ever have and you know why that happens is because you tried to take a band-aid and put it on a heart that was collapsing and choking out when what really needed to happen is you needed your heart opened up and you needed open heart surgery. And that's what so happens so many times when people try to put some good things on top of what their real need is. You need someone to save you from your sin. And that is the root of your problem. And you will never be close to God until you believe, until you, what John says here by the Spirit, see Jesus as your Savior. And you testify, he is the only one that I need. He is the only one who can save me from my sins. And you start there with your need for a savior. You see, God has dependency issues. And you can have no part of him unless you depend wholly upon him. And you can't depend on all the other stuff that you you can push into your new spiritual moment. No, you can't depend upon those things. You depend upon Jesus as Savior, and you begin there by saying, I have a great need, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. And here is what you do, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, we know that, that we abide in God because He has given us His Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit shows us a need for a Savior, And and as we see our need for our Savior, here is what we do. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We confess. We agree. The term here is used of what it means to uh, agree with a government of who the emperor is. It was often said that that, um, you must confess Caesar is Lord. You must agree with the Roman government that he is supreme authority. And here the Christian is to confess, notice, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God's King, that Jesus is the final authority, that that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean. The one who it was said was born of Mary, adopted by Joseph. He was a self-proclaimed rabbi. He was a rebel rouser who was crucified by the Romans. A man that was literally seen and touched and heard and declared to be back from the dead. That specific person, that Jesus, John says, that he walked with, that he talked, that he ate fish with, that he went fishing with. That Jesus is God's son. And the Christian agrees with that. God says this is his final authority. And the Christian says, yes, he is. The Spirit opens your eyes to see Jesus as the Savior. And you say, yes, he is the Savior. At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus goes out to the Jordan River. And there his cousin John is baptizing folks who are repenting that, that they that they want the kingdom of God to come and so they're turning from their sin they're turning from their religion they're turning from the government that they know and they're being baptized out in the Jordan and here comes Jesus and he says I have to be baptized by you John to fulfill all righteousness I have to identify with my people and John says, no, that, that ain't happening. And Jesus says, it has to. Because Jesus is identifying with the people who must be judged for their sin. They must be judged to be a kingdom. And so John baptizes Jesus out in the Jordan. And as soon as he comes up out of the water, the spirit comes down. The text says, like a dove. And then there is a voice from heaven that says, behold this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And in that moment, as the people of God are looking for a kingdom, as John is pointing to a kingdom, the spirit comes down and says, this is the king. He anoints Jesus in the Jordan. And the father from heaven says, yes, this is my king. And the same thing happens in our life when the gospel is preached to us. That, that When the gospel that you are a sinner who deserves to die for your sin in eternal judgment, but Jesus is the only one who can save you from your sin, Jesus who has been immersed into the waters of judgment and he has come up in a resurrection, the spirit comes down and says, yes, this is God's king. And the father says, yes, this is God's king. And the way that you know the salvation of Jesus Christ who is the son of God is you agree with God. That's how you come to know salvation in Jesus is you agree with God and you say, yes, he is the savior of the world. Yes, he is your king. And because he is your king, he is the only one who can save me from my sins. The Christian agrees with the spirit and the father that Jesus is his king. You see, that gets to the heart of our problem though. We don't agree with God that Jesus is king. We, that, that is the heart of our sin problem is that we reject that notion. We, we come into the world living as if we are king. I'm king and Jesus isn't king. And sin's not the prob, my greatest problem. See, it's really hard to convince folks that you're a sinner and that you need a savior when most people don't even care about their sin. They don't understand their sin, the consequences of their sin. No, their greatest problem is their happiness. No, I came here today for you to tell me how I can move from being unhappy to happy. The sin thing, oh, that's really irrelevant. And that's how most people think about their life. The greatest problem is their unhappiness. I'm a king and I deserve to be happy but I don't have enough money to be happy. I'm a king, and I deserve to be happy, but I don't have the kind of job that makes me happy. I'm a king, and I deserve to be happy, but my family doesn't make me happy. And so Jesus isn't a king who saves us. He becomes a slave who is to provide us happiness. And so much Christianity is driven in that way. We, we sing songs about Jesus being king, but so often we sing those songs and, and we're, we're, we're mouthing the words that Jesus is king, but what we're really looking for in worship is a moment of happiness. We, we will declare that Jesus is king so that in that moment he'll give me some warm fuzzies so I can be happy in that moment. In our prayers... We mouth the words in Jesus' name, and and we we do so not just, Jesus, for your name's sake and for your glory. We we use them as a magical incantation to say, fix my problem. That's what we really want to say to Jesus. And we change words like faith into just power, you know, the power of positive thinking. That's what faith is. And victory in Jesus, it's not victory over sin and death. It's victory for me. Winning. Winning. I deserve to win. Well, you're a sinner who's going to die and go to hell. Isn't that a priority? But no, I I deserve happiness. And and that's the way we think about Christianity. We, We don't even understand our greatest problem. And when we think about forgiveness, we think about it this way. I'm sorry, Jesus, please fix it anyway. Maybe, Jesus, I did make some bad financial decisions. Fix it. Maybe, Jesus, I have made some bad relationship decisions. Fix it, Jesus. Maybe, I'm a jerk, Jesus. Fix everybody else, Jesus. That's the way we think about Christianity, is that I'm king and Jesus is slave for my happiness. But here's true happiness, confessing Jesus is king and saying, my worst problem isn't my happiness. My worst problem is I have rejected Jesus. When I think those thoughts that I'm king, guess what I'm doing? I'm rejecting God's king. I'm rejecting Jesus as king. The world is created for him. The world is created for his glory. And every time I look at things to serve myself, I'm acting like I'm king and it's about my glory. Every time I do things... For my own happiness at the expense of others. At my own happiness at the expense of his word. What I am acting like is Jesus is a slave and I'm king. And that is my worst sin. And I deserve to be shunned by Jesus forever for that. I have rejected his goodness and I deserve to be shunned from his goodness forever. But instead of living in rejection, I confess Jesus is king. You want to know know how to be saved from your sins right now. You confess Jesus is king. You, You say, Jesus, you are king and you're the only one who can take care of my sins. Jesus is the only king who can save you based on what he has done for you on the cross. You see, John says he is the propitiation for your sin. All of that rebellion, all of that wickedness, that shunning you deserve, Jesus bore that as wrath on the cross, the justice of God. He was forsaken by God. He screamed till he could not scream anymore. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did it so you would not have to be shunned for your sin. And he is the only one who can save you from your sin because he was a sinless king. He was a sinless sacrifice. He never once lived outside of God's authority. He never once had a thought that wasn't surrendered to the glory of God. He never once acted in a way of rebellion against God. He's not the one who deserves to be shunned, but he is eternally banished on the cross in your place, and you scream out to God, I confess he is the only king who can save me from my sins based on what he has done for me on the cross. That is how you know Jesus as Savior. Have you confessed Jesus as king based on his work on the cross? And finally, we see when you do that, notice he goes back to the beginning. God abides in him and he in God. He says, we know we have the spirit because we have seen and we have testified Jesus is savior. We confess he is savior by saying he is God's king based on what he did on the cross and and we know when we do that that we abide in him in he and us now now the point of 1 John is when we experience that what we experience is love one of the main points of 1 John is three words god is love meaning that's who god is he loves himself the father loves the son Son loves the Father. Spirit loves to make much of the Father's plan, to make much of the Son. God loves Himself. God is love. And when you believe in Jesus, the Spirit takes you and wraps you into that love. And so when you say that you abide in God and He in you, you are living in love. You live and breathe and dwell in in the love of God. Love, that's what you experience. That's what you come to know, God's commitment to your good no matter what. The, the, The foundation of your life becomes the love of God. You live and you breathe and you exist in the love of God. Think about what began God's relationship with you, love. The Father decided to love you and sent his son to die for you. A love is commitment to another person's good no matter what. It cost God the son to love you. So when you confess Jesus is God's king who died for your sin, you're confessing God's love for you. It's what defines the relationship. The Father loves the Son. Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Father's plan to make much of the Son. And because God loves himself, he can't unlove you. He can't. God is not going to unlove himself. And so when you say, am I a Christian? If you are, you're loved. And that's where you live. You see, so many of us are here today and we're trying to be admired by somebody we, we are trying to make a parent love us. We're trying to make someone proud of us. Trying to impress a coach so we can get a spot. Trying to do a good job on our tests so our teachers will see us as intelligent. We're, we're, we're trying to impress friends. We're trying to impress our kids. We want them to just appreciate us. You, just look at your life. You're probably here today because you're, you're trying to impress someone. You're trying for someone to admire you and love you. And yet the Christian lives in the love of God. We're not not going around with the camera. Hey, make sure you get my, my best side. Make sure to hold the camera up because you don't want to see my chin. Make sure to do it over here so you don't see my belly poking out. We're constantly living life under a camera, hiding our worst, showing our best. Well, here's the reality. God loved you before your worst moment ever happened. He knew about your worst before it ever happened. And he sent his son to die for you. Life doesn't have to be a constant Instagram story when you know the love of God for you not trying to impress God. No, you abide in God, meaning you live in his love, meaning you trust in his love. You confess Jesus as the witness, as the savior of his love. And I'll make you a promise today. If you confess Jesus as the only one who can save you from your sins based on what he did for you on the cross, I won't lie at your funeral. I won't lie at your funeral. As, as we stand around and we try to find some reason to be, you know, comfortable and less awkward with what's going on, and hopefully we'll have some good things to say, I won't say anything bad, but I won't lie, and I will make it all about Jesus. I will tell the truth about Jesus, and I will tell the truth about what it means to follow Jesus. And until you tell the truth about Jesus, until you confess him as Savior, King, sent to save you from your sins, the truth about you today is you're lost. And you don't know Jesus. No matter what kind of spirituality you're trying to embrace, if it's not Jesus is the one who saves me from my sins, the truth is you are lost. You're lost. You're dying. And you're not going to be able to stop the dying. You're not going to be able to stop time. You're not going to be able to stop the wrinkles. You're not going to be able to bring the kids back home. You're not going to be able to go back to yesterday and the things that you said and the things that you did and the things that you regret. You're not going to be able to go back. You're not going to be able to stop it. You're dying and eternal death is coming. And the question is, the question will be, not what are we going to do with him? It's today, what are you going to do with Jesus? Let's pray.